Hi there, and welcome to the show that's all about celebrating all the shapes, sizes, and colors of diversity as well as adversity, and seeks to inspire the world through authentic conversations that are both meaningful and relatable. Each episode, I deep dive into the extraordinary journey of an average yet super incredible person in the diversity space. We talk about everything from their personal accomplishments and or contributions to social impact to some of the adversity they've had to face along the way and the resiliency and tenacity that got them to where they are today. I'm your host, Tisha Gillespie, and this is Not Your Average Goat. Hi there, welcome back to part two of Being Myself Always from Bipolar to Misfit. In the second half of this conversation, we talk about what life was like for Steven and his wife coming back to the States, including almost hitting bankruptcy, their journey to starting a family, and learning how to be parents to a son with a developmental delay. Then we dive headfirst into Steven's experience with mania, including what it was like going into the mental hospital, his time coming home and trying to integrate back into normal society, and then finding out his wife was also bipolar just a few months later. We also talk about how Stephen recently made the very difficult decision to choose mental health over his job and how he's been prioritizing his own personal well-being and also his son. I can't wait for you to hear the rest of this conversation. So let's get started. So like, as we're, you know, as we're talking here and we're talking about my journey and this is where I'd say, like, this is where everything starts. The real significant kind of moments that start leading to the bipolar and all of these kind of things. And sorry, I'm saying it this way because it's sort of now this kind of Mm. story arc to kind of tell is like I kept hitting walls in life where nothing was satisfying in any way like just dead dull like I tried to be excited I put all my all and stuff and then I just spin out to like angry or tired or over it and all that it was just up and down up and down up and down now I say it doesn't sound so surprising right but back then it was like what the hell's wrong with me um and they had made changes in my job at the place I was at because of the conditions of my work permit I could only work at this one company because I didn't have a college degree here's (laughs) there you go here's an example of when that bites me really in the butt (laughs) you get a better you get more flexibility if you had a college degree kind of thing um so they had made changes in the role and the role became very sales consulting sales and i just never want to be a salesman like i just don't want to be a salesman um i I just have a discomfort with it even though i i tend to have the characteristics you'd want in a salesman right positive smile nice guy good conversation like i just i have a discomfort with it um so it was that, um, honestly, my wife and I weren't doing great at all. Um, actually, during the London time, she threatened divorce in that first year, which was really hard. Um, 
but she was so alone. And I was so caught up in the, I need to show my worth because I don't have a degree and these people paid all this money to move me here and all of that. So I got to do a good job and da, da, da. And that's what fueled me a lot when I was younger in my work experience. Maybe I wasn't as honest when I talked about that college degree thing because that's what would happen. Um, I lost sight of her and she was fine. She got a job and everything, but she was just so like, where are you? <laughs> um, so like, you know, she slept at a friend's for days and we kind of reconciled, but that was like one of those first real stakes in the ground as we start building the stairs to dropping into the insanity pit or whatever. Um, so it was necessity. We needed to come home. We were done. Um, it was such a culture shock from the get-go and like we you know we were suburb kids and all that and like we live in the middle of like one of the you know most intergalactic cities in the world you know? <laughs> it just kind of got old um and then my wife who was such a savvy money person her whole life because of her parents she had bought a condo during her early aol years in tucson and we were, our plan was to move to tucson arizona and try to live out there in the sun live near her folks who live there still um so we moved back we moved back and we spent a couple of weeks in virginia just catching up with family and then we drove cross country with our dog in a in like a rental truck uh to tucson to start the next chapter we were there briefly because we realized that the town was dead and there was no jobs and we were <laughs> starting to get close and we actually got really close to bankruptcy at this mm. point um and so we still own the place in virginia so we made a last ditch effort so we drove again cross country about five months later in the middle of december um it was cold it snowed on the final couple of days <laughs> and oh. we had bought this 92 uh toyota tercel um and i was towing that in the back it was our car our only car um and oh my god so we ended up living with our renters for about a month before they could move out it was so awkward while we were trying to find work we were so close to being like I mean, we had the house, but like, you know, we owe so much on that thing, you know? And it was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And we, I forget who got the job first. I think Magda, because she keeps in touch with a lot of people. Cause I'm not, I don't do Facebook and stuff. Like she keeps in touch with all of her old friends. I kept in touch with one of my old colleagues from AOL. And then I ended up getting a job with her um, at her company, which was Time, Time Life Music and Movies if you remember those infomercials. So we never said we wanted to have kids. It was more of, we would decide the day it would be okay if we did, but we were never going to like force the hand. If it happened, great. If it didn't, that was fine too. Um, and so once we were kind of stabilized and all that, and it was, you know, 2011, um, yeah. Um, I remember I was driving home one day from work and I saw Magda, it was like a pretty spring summer day and she's walking her dog and I parked the car and I start going down the street to see her and I see she's crying and I run up to her. I'm like, oh my God, what's wrong? And she said, I'm pregnant. 
I'm like, oh my God, that's so great. Yeah, hug and all that kind of stuff. I mean, because it wasn't exactly expected or anything. Yeah. It wasn't like unwelcome, but it was definitely like, whoa, you know. Um, and, you know, we still had a lot of doubts about us. And, you know, again, like it's like eight years in and now we're having a kid and all that. It was just weird. I can relate to that too. I mean, yeah. Chris and I have been together now for 13 years and it's still something where I'm just like, I don't know, kind of in the same boat you guys were in. Like if, if it happens, it happens, you know, but it's not something we're necessarily going to plan for at this moment. Right. I um, mean, it's a hard sell in today's world. Oh yeah. It's, it, it's a hard sell. Yeah. Like, you know, if you, ha- if like, I love my kids, like, but if you have that magic wand, like, would you have them again combo? Like, the world today is what would make me pause, even though I love them, everything, and I would can't imagine not having them, but like them having to live in this is mm-hmm. why I would be like, no, <laughs> you know, because um, not that their world can't be great, and the way we're trying to learn and everything that I'm trying to be and I'm trying to instill in them with the hope that they can try to build a world that's better. But I hear you. Like it's a hard sell right now. Not to mention there's so many people. There's just so many people. And I just worry. I worry about just what's everyone going to do. But it's very, it's very true. It is a very hard sell. And then I wonder, you know, if I brought them kids into this type of world, could it actually be a benefit? Because I know I would raise very great kids, fingers crossed, and actually bring some good people into this world. Um, So there's also that thought too, but it's just also very scary being responsible for another human being. (laughs) It just, it scares me a lot. And I can't, I can't imagine what you guys went through when you found, I mean, Magda, she and she seemed like so scared from how you were describing her when you saw her walking the dog, when you came home. And I can't, I just can only imagine what that was like bringing London home from the hospital. And then having also realizing that, you know, London was dealing with some dementia developmental delays too early on. Yeah. Yeah. I think as a parent, you, you feel it much earlier than you're willing to admit, right? You know, it'll notice the subtle cues and things like that. Um, if you're really kind of an aware person of even people around you, you can kind of feel the subtle looks or the things that like your parents would do and all that. All of this to say is, you know, it was a parent he wasn't developing, quote unquote, the standard way you'd be used to. Um, yeah. And so um, it was, we'll call it about 18 months where I think there was finally that moment where my parents were finally like, hey, we really think you need to do something. Like, we think there's something up. And we were like, finally, like, yeah, we think so too. Um, you know, he was diagnosed with a developmental delay pre-autism. It was developmental delay and a tick, um, possibly pre-autism. It's such a huge conversation that they, they're very delicate in diagnosis. But, you know, basically they go through a checklist of like a 10 or so kind of common um, flags. And like he was like eight of the 10. 
Um, so yeah, Magda's pregnant with Knox at this time. Um, I remember I, I had to take the week off. I took the week off just to kind of explore all of it, right? Like all of a sudden you're now thrust in this world and it's on you to figure it out and learn about it and figure out what the resources are and what steps you take and all that. And I mean, at the time, and I know it's better now, but it's probably nowhere near where it needs to be, which is ironic given pretty much every child now is dealing with mental challenges from COVID is um, it was hard to find all this information. Like it wasn't fully developed and all that. And I, and, you know, in retrospect, we lucked out because we happen to live in the county that we are who have actually luckily have been one of the more preeminent public school systems to focus on early childhood development and autism you know, for the last 40, 50 years, like they just so happen to be one of like the three that have been doing this like forever. You know, we got into some, you know, at home therapy sessions and stuff um, with a wonderful man named Richard who worked for a service. And if in any way, Richard, I don't know, we don't know where he landed, but if there's any way he hears me, like I would love to talk to him again, but he was so right about our son because he was like, he had, he spent a day with them and he's like, your son is not autistic. He's like, he's like, there's something there. Uh, he's like, but he's very stubborn and he's going to have a hell of a time with the teachers. <laughs> that's what he always and that's pretty much been his entire school saga, but that kid is so tough. He's had like seven schools or like six schools, like so many teachers and he's 10. Um, and he's been through so much. Um, but yeah, in those early days, like it was awful. You thought your life was over. You go all over the place with it. You're like, oh, he's gonna be unable to care for himself the rest of his life. We're gonna be with him. And then like your whole life changes and what you think your life is gonna be and everything you expected it to be changes. And like, it's just funny. It's just, you realize how dangerous expectation really is and how silly it is. <laughs> it's yeah. like there's so many things that are required to make an expectation exactly as you think of it happen and so anyway so it was tough I mean yeah lots of tears anger all that stuff um but you know like everything we had done up until then and everything you know like only way out is through and we just had to deal with it and I, I, I couldn't tell you exactly how we did every day, but we did. And we're here now, but it was hard. It was really hard. Um, you felt like a failure. I know that sounds so messed up because it's not a failure in any way, it's, but I don't know. I can definitely understand how you could feel like that, especially me thinking about potentially being a mother, like, was there something I did during the pregnancy that caused right. this? Oh, or, yeah. you know, was there something in my genes that I passed on to my kid? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I can definitely, definitely understand, but I'm glad you guys don't blame yourself and you've gotten to a spot where you are accepting and have learned to live and really be there to, to help London yeah. through, through, yeah. through this. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And for everyone's benefit, he's, he's doing great. He's, he's doing really great now. So, um, 
Um, big shout out to all those educators out there that we do. Some of us really do love and appreciate you and what you all do. And you guys don't get paid enough. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No way. Yeah. What are some of the, if there are any, what are some like misconceptions or things that you think are just important to address when it comes to raising a child with a developmental delay, you know, whether in the education system or at home or anywhere? Oh, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's not just even with children with developmental delay. I think it's just like the whole, this whole mental health illness, disease, whatever people want to call it, like that whole conversation. I, I think the danger is assuming like there's a huge swath of people that are super similar and these people who are, you know, the misfits or the, you know, don't fit the molds and all that are a smaller minority. But the more and more I think about it, the more I experience it, it's like, I think everyone is. <laughs> a little bit in their own way you know I think COVID exasperated that where we've shown like everyone's got a little bit of challenge that they're dealing with in all of that um I understand the idea like sometimes with these kids and we dealt with this with our son like we were embarrassed because he didn't act a certain way or he wouldn't you know stand straight for a long period of time but that's because he couldn't like he just biologically can't or whatever. And I can understand that sometimes that's disruptive or it can be perceived as disruptive, but I think it's more important for the people who have these children to not think that themselves, right? It's like, they just are who they are. And all you can really do is help them the best that you can. And, um, I think it's also important. Sorry, this is a hard one to answer because there's so much in it to try to express, um, especially when it comes to like, I guess, normal people as they're called. Whatever normal means. Whatever yeah. that means. Um, what it means is I don't stick out today. That's all it means. Um, doesn't mean it's absolute because tomorrow you might be the awkward one there's this awareness i think more consciously of like mental health because of what is covid what covid did to everyone right and now everyone feels like they're a little more crazy and i'll be honest being someone who actually has been utilizing and needing these resources before covid like now everyone's using them <laughs> So there is like you can't get psychiatry appointments anymore because everyone now is in therapy and all that, which is fine. Um, but I think what it helped me realize is the misfits of this world, the ones on the spectrum, the educators that help them, the bipolars, the ones that are trying to get through each day, even though they're not normal, those are the ones that have the learning. Like if you wanna learn and grow, those are the people you need to appreciate and watch and learn because they're doing it in spite of, you know what I mean? Like 
they're this i mean what your podcast is about it's like they're doing it beyond normal right and it's like i often said that when we worked at our ed place you and i i would like you know what like we should really be highlighting the programs that are doing this for the developmental delay kids and for the autistic kids because like that's the inspiring stuff right because all the normal people think oh these poor people and they can't do this and charity this like no we they should be like in awe right i guess that's what this podcast is right in awe of these people right they know better than normal people they do they've been doing it longer we've been doing it harder right we had more practice right but for some reason you all think you know everything and it's just weird it's just weird to me but i've only been able to see it because of my life's journey and it's my own so i don't hate anyone for not understanding how can i hate them if they don't experience it right i've talked about this with a couple of people before but one of the podcasts that inspired me to do this work in progress hosted by Sophia Bush, mm. she talks a lot about this. So we talk about privilege and usually it's a negative connotation, but she talks a lot about this idea of exposure privilege and that it's really a privilege to actually grow up in a neighborhood or go to school with diverse groups of people to mm. see different colors, to see people with disabilities, to see people with chronic conditions or mental health conditions, like having those people around you to grow up with all of that diversity is such a privilege that not everyone gets. And that's where these stereotypes or this lack of knowledge comes from. And so that's really what I'm trying to do with the podcast as you, as you hint at. Yeah. Uh, You know, it, I just keying off of that, right. It's, uh, it's, it's so well said. And it sort of flies in the face of kind of what happens is what you've just described or how she's describing how you're articulating, right, is that privilege is rare, right? It's super rare. Not everyone gets that level of experience and exposure, right? Typically in our cultures, rare equals what? Expensive, higher value right? More interesting, higher sought correlation, maybe, maybe not. But like, I think that's what she, like, that's exactly right. And that's what we do with all things that are like rare and precious and all that. For her to articulate it that, like, I love it. It's absolutely true. April 24th is what I consider day one of the three-day mania period that I had, which then culminated on the 26th and my being admitted um, to the mental facility um, at the hospital here uh, in Northern Virginia. And that's when I got the bipolar diagnosis. What do you remember most about like what happened, any transformation that took place during those three days, like the yeah. experience you had in the hospital? Yeah. Um, 
That's a great question. I think people are curious about stuff like that. Um, we're on the heels of the diagnosis for my son with autism. Um, my wife was pregnant. My actually, my my and then my wife was pregnant, and then she ended up getting laid off in the fall of 2014. So that freaked us out. Um, then she got a job, and then I was laid off. Um, like December of 2014. So then that freaked out again even more. What a roller coaster. Um, and then I started working with an old colleague from AOL. Um, we found each other, you know, in early spring of 2015. And oh, God bless that. I'm a big God guy, but like that he was my manager. <laughs> of all the managers I needed to be my manager when this all happened, it was him. Um, and so all of these things started happening and the thing about like manic episodes, like you kind of need a perfect storm of things to happen where that mind, body, soul is all out of whack. And so it's, it's, and this is kind of based, it's, it's a little more, it's a little more me just talking with different people and stuff, but there's definitely this layer of you haven't been taking care of yourself physically. So your, your body is just way stretched thin. Um, typically your mind is cluttered with so much stuff. There's just all of this stuff, typically angst, negative, all of that. And then because of all that, your soul is just ripped apart. You know what I mean? And like, you're kind of in despair. And I think what happened, there was a trigger moment. I honestly don't really remember what it was, but it then triggered all of those elements culminating where then all of a sudden um, my entire body and system was moving like an overdrive. Like I was so sleep deprived that I couldn't sleep anymore. You know, like that hyperactivity that kicks in, you know, that second wind kind of thing. All the while with all of this, remember I explained earlier, even after the London time, like I kept hitting these walls in my life of just not knowing where to go. And when I started working at the place with my buddy in early 2015, I remembered this book that I learned about years back when I was in my early AOL days that a friend of mine was reading called um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And for whatever reason, I remembered this book and it, when he read it, it kind of changed his life. He then went to this pilgrimage to Thailand and he stayed on the beach for like two weeks and he came back all different. He went hiking up the Appalachian trail and all this stuff. So I went and got it and I started reading it on the subway going to and fro from work. And Oh man, this thing, it like peppered throughout. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like the thing when they say it's like it, it says all these things you think or you've thought in your life, but probably never said out loud or anything like that. And it just started triggering all of these responses out of me about like, yeah, right. Wait. And it's it's a it's a philosophy book. It's about the world and all things and stuff. And it just so take that combined with this hyperactivity and trauma and all these bad things that have been happening and I'm searching for betterment and then this thing is answering a lot of some really big questions for me and it just kind of snowballed and all of a sudden my brain just started going like 
And so during the actual mania timeframe, I describe it as the dismantling of who I was and how I understood everything, because I can remember these moments during it where I was dealing with regrets from my past and reconciling my fault in it and things like that down to like I was stripped kind of raw like almost unaware of the world for a while that was probably Saturday um and then Sunday like you know it culminated like I'm way I'm like now I'm thinking a whole different way of the world and life is very different and there's there's goodness out there and it can be better but I mean I'm I'm definitely out there man I'm on the roof in my boxer shorts <laughs> like, like oh, everything's great you know I oh my I goodness ran to, I, we were renting a place near my parents where I grew up and I ran mm-hmm. all the way over there in my boxers and I went through the back door and they were like, like horrified, but they're so sweet. And they just didn't know what to do. My wife had no idea what to do. Um, Cops were there. Um, The funniest part is like, at one point I thought um, if I stepped on grass, I was invisible. So like they were talking to my wife in the driveway and I'm standing next to them in the grass and I don't think they can see me. (laughs) They're just like, yeah. So like it goes all over the place. Right. Um, so yeah, like from the outside, it looks ridiculous, but in your mind, there's all these connections and these things that were happening. Um, and I think that's what was different and slightly more unique about my experience because when the mania ended, I was done, like pooped, right? <laughs> like just not an ounce of energy. And I collapsed in like the playground in the backyard. I remember this, I can still feel it. And it was a beautiful sunny day. And I could feel the heat of the sun on me and I just collapsed and I knew it was over. And there was like an ambulance and it was just so funny. And then like, I had two paramedics and they're carrying me and I have my arms side to side. And then um, I'm sitting in the back of the truck and I have uh, IVs in both my wrists and I'm just, and I'm aware of everything now. I'm aware of what just happened. I'm like back, so to speak. Um, and so by the time I get to the hospital, I think they, you know, they're typically waiting for that pushback when, because no one who's bipolar from what I've encountered likes to be called bipolar. They don't like being crazy. And, but for me, I'm like, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, we think you're bipolar. I'm like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like the last 40 years of my life makes total fucking sense or 37 years. Um, and What's funny is that although that philosophy and all of the Zen stuff sort of was that final kind of input to move me into the mania, it actually was the salvation coming back out. Because what I kept was not the, you know, I'm in my underwear on the roof, but like the thinking around how we think and how we view all things in the world makes a lot of sense for me. And it's actually when I said to you, and I probably said to you when I shared this story to you that first time at work, it's like the person you're talking to now is not the person you would have talked to before all of this. It wouldn't, he would have sounded similar. He would have been interesting and entertaining, 
but like the openness and that feeling of camaraderie and all that, like, I don't think it would have been there. And it's because of all of that. And so everything has now, everything I've done since has been sort of in those footsteps of what he, the author, Robert Persig, Persig was trying to say, um, but expanded in my own way because of my own life experience and all of the different opportunities of all the different cultures and all different types of people that I've met. And I've done a lot of introspection in the last seven years about applying this worldview to all the things I'm, I've experienced and you know, seeing it makes sense. Sorry, I'm getting way out there, but that's kind of like it. Um, it's hard to describe crazy. Like part of it was really crazy, man. <laughs> it was like super crazy stuff. Yeah. Like, um, but again, like, it's like, you know, when they say like, you know, you have dreams and dreams are weird and the theory is like, maybe the brain's like doing memory storage and it's just like a conglomerate of these different pieces and stuff like that's a lot of that mania was like these weird pieces hooking together and they make sense at the time but if you if I spell them out to you now it'd be like <laughs> they sound ridiculous but there was a feeling in there that was real and genuine this feeling of like breaking free and I think I ex explained it that way earlier and I'll say it now like being tagged as bipolar, being tagged as technically a misfit from the normal released me and gave me a level of freedom that um, has really helped me. Um, and it's kind of a freedom and a thinking that my, honestly, my hope is to try to share it with as many people as possible. And this is, you know, why I'm talking to you about it today. I love how you describe it as feeling free when you got that tag, because I think there is so much stigma mm -hmm. around bipolarism, as you alluded to earlier, yeah. by people not wanting to be tagged with that. And then people who aren't bipolar, just having these assumptions mm -hmm. or misconceptions about what bipolarism means. So I love that you describe it like that and you were able to embrace it. And I know we were kind of laughing earlier and I'm so glad you kind of got to this point where you can kind of look back and, you know, have a chuckle about some of those events that happened, but it is also a very real condition as you also talk about and something probably very tough to deal with maybe even today, but especially probably right after you got diagnosed. So what do you remember most about when you first came home from the hospital and maybe like the next couple of months trying to just become like live this new quote unquote normal and just become comfortable with who you now were? Yeah. Um, I love that question. Um, honestly, like every day, the layer of freedom has gotten less because you ultimately have to reinsert yourself into the what I call the the static world static quo um you know gotta work nine to five job pay your bills do all that kind of you know normal stuff um so at first it was freeing because like I kind of got a clean slate you go into a you know, crazy house, if you want to call it that, you come out, like you kind of are starting at square one, <laughs> you, know? Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, 
And at first it was amazing because I had all of these and I, I still have them, but I think they're like now lost to the years is strategies of how to better manage the static stuff of things so that you could really live in a world of the present moment, right? So we hear that a lot out of like Eastern philosophy, you hear it out of, I mean, it's not, it's a trite thing, right? Living in the moment, right? And not in the past and present. And everyone says that, and I do agree. Um, I think the problem is no one tells you how to do it. <laughs> like they just say, don't live in the past, you know? And like, well, how do I not do that? Um, and so my early days was just, trying stuff out <laughs> it's the only way i can describe it was just like i'm just going to try to live different i'm still going to do the same stuff but my approach and attitude to it, toward it all was very different and at first it was very happy and floating on air and i was still probably a little manic quite frankly um and the ideas i was having post mania right just about the philosophy and all that and the correlations i was trying to make and all that like they were coming fast and furious still so there's a lot of great notes and thinking and um and those early days are some of the early tests and templating that i tried out that helped define how i ran a team that you were on with me years later right so there were things that I learned early on that I tried out with my teams then that I kind of incorporated into like how I ran teams in the future, which was really about everything you've described. So <laughs> I could not describe how I run stuff as well as you just did for me at the beginning of this. Um, so um, on the flip though, uh, my wife was very angry um, because she was on the other end of all of it. And she had to deal with the fear and her husband going into a mental hospital. And she was very resentful that my family was trying to be sympathetic to my cause. And she's like, but I had to deal with all this stuff. And um, so it was hard because I was trying to show her I was this new person. But what I've found is the closer you are to someone, the longer you've known them, the harder it is to convince them you're different it's really hard. And um, it probably took a good, I would say five years before I think she really bought in. But that was because she had to finish parts of her own journey too. So on top of all of this, you're still yeah. trying to work on your own, on mm -hmm. yourself. Magda actually goes mm -hmm. through a mania period in November, just seven oh, months year. later. Yeah. yeah. So Hers was a similar spell. She went on a trip, actually funny enough, to London. She saw a bunch of her old friends there. Mm. Um, didn't sleep well, couldn't acclimate. So that whole, remember that body thing didn't happen. And then, so she wasn't eating, sleeping was all off. Um, she had been dealing with just the trauma of me and trying to deal with the, like, as TJ, if you thought I had a lot of energy when I interviewed you, you can imagine like first out of the hospital, the ball of fire that I was oh, yeah. like constantly like it took a while to kind of numb myself out to that you know dumb it down a bit um 
so she was dealing with all of that. And then her final trigger was a, a, a middle school friend of hers who had beaten cancer once, passed away quickly from cancer again. She had three beautiful daughters and it just like broke her, um, you know, cause we were still dealing with the early stages of London and just being a mom, just, I mean, you can imagine. So her being someone who was so giving of herself and has, is, is definitely one of those people who thinks of themselves rarely like she doesn't treat herself a lot and and things like that um she finally her 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 mania kind of turned into this like independent streak of like i'm finally gonna do for me kind of thing and it was scary because she like would leave for hours at a time in the car and she ended up driving all over the area visiting old spots we go to seeing people and like freaking everyone out um and so what happened was we were we were scheduled to go to this like weekend cooking thing we were really into cooking at the time this weekend cooking thing and a bed and breakfast in like you know you know a little more southwest of you know where we are now and she's like manic and I'm talking to my family. I'm like, I don't know what to do because part of me is like, you know, cause I'm still kind of manic. Right. And so now we're both kind of feeding on each other. And now I'm kind of like picking up on her mania and I'm kind of going the wrong way. Like I'm now becoming manic. We got these two like babies, <laughs> you know? So, um, finally I get my head on straight. I talk to my one sister finally. And I, uh, it's this song and dance where my wife's place like, you you're crazy. You're crazy again. And, da, da, da. and I'm like, Oh man. And so we agree to go to the hospital so they can evaluate me. Wink, wink. Um, but once I get there, it becomes this series of like, I like looks to different people, like the nurse and all that. And we're all aware of what's happening without saying it. And my wife is just manic. And so we're all like maneuvering around this story that I'm getting evaluated and then we spring a judge on a TV screen or a psychiatrist and with a judge. And they are like, I get a court order to put her in the hospital for three days for evaluation. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. She was not happy. She must have been livid. Oh, she was so. Yeah. It's. That takes a lot of courage, though. It's one of the most necessary regrets I have in my life. Really? What? What? What about it makes you regret doing that? It's um. You never want to break a trust like that. No. I, it was for the best, of course, but you know, there is that you can't erase the feeling. You know, for that split second, just that look when she figures it out, that split moment when she's like, I thought we were a team, you know? But in retrospect, yes, we are. And that's what I did. Like, I did exactly what you did for me. I saved you, <laughs> you know, from yourself for this moment, because you're a mess. And so um, she ended up agreeing to stay for the full week after that, because it's very complex to keep someone in a hospital. like. You can't really do it. You have to really prove a burden of doubt to get someone for a long time. Um, but she agreed to stay for the week. Um, her journey has been a bit different. And so ever since now, it's been 
Yeah, long going. And it's only been, I say, the last two years where I think she's gotten to a point and has heard enough crap from me where she sort of agreed or started to seize the world the way I'm trying to describe, which is almost impossible. Um, so we're we're on the same page. It's it's miraculous, honestly. Um, all the doctors say so. <laughs> like, because typically the bipolar relationship is you have one bipolar, one person who's stable, and they those relationships usually break because the person who's the stable one can't take it, you know, after so long. Um, so to both be it is quite an undertaking. To both be it and not knowing until you're close to 40 is another thing. Um, what's interesting, and I think COVID, this came up a lot in our conversations is it's so much more beneficial that we both are than if one person wasn't. I'd almost like recommend it if you could if we could like, I had this idea, if we could actually take like eHarmony and orient those technologies the right way and finding the right kind of matches, like I would use it to find the right bipolar matches because I think there's a layer of understanding and care that someone who hasn't done that journey can't comprehend. And so now when we get mad or we get upset and that, that, that thing with bipolar is we understand what each other is going through in that moment and then can act upon it to help the other one. So it's like, there's no guilt in walking away, right? There's no guilt in that we yelled at each other. There's no guilt in that because we understand that it's something else that's going on that we're trying to master. But yeah, it was, um, it was a mess. All the doctors say we should write a book or something. This is the best I'm going to do, Tisha. I'll be Good. honest. You already have the book title. I know. You already have the book right. title. That's right. I already do. But that's, um, yeah. So that's yeah, 2015. That was a hell of a year. And I'm what all for that dating app, too. That's, yeah, that's a good idea, right? It's yeah. Not really. yeah. It's right. so incredible. I love that you guys have that. And, and you're kind of in a mental place. I, I, I don't know if that is the right phrasing or not yeah, but yeah. you guys are in like a, a good place to really have that empathy for each other too and to have that awareness and be mindful mm -hmm. in those moments that can be very difficult for people and uh i i think probably the closest thing that i can relate to is you know chris and i have a lot of similar baggage Sure. from the, the personalities of our mothers, hmm. our fathers not being around. And, and so right. I think from that perspective, we can, we can, we understand each other's baggage. I always yeah. think of the movie with um, Ryan Reynolds. Uh, like it's one of the ones that he put out a couple of years ago. It was got like, it was like really big. I don't know why I can't think of it. Um, but one of the phrases in there was like, you're crazy matches my crazy. And uh, so I, oh. it's a great, it's a great line. That's yeah. that's what it's like. That's us. Yeah. So it's it's it, I think that that type of app, if you if you could figure it out from a matching perspective, and right? I, if people could be open and vulnerable and actually share where they are in their journey too. Yeah. Um, that's a. I think you hit it on your head there, and I think that's, and I think you mentioned it earlier is the stigmas attached, how the culture views it now um that makes it that challenge but yeah 
Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe we need to build that. I never would have guessed that you were bipolar until you told me. And that's one of the big things is that a lot of mental health conditions are invisible. One in five people you come across has some type of mental health condition and it could be anyone. It could be the person you're sitting right next to right now, you know? And so I think that's, that's a big thing to kind of, to normalize it and, Mm -hmm. and to, to not make, give people the opportunity to be exposed, kind of going back to that exposure privilege. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. Um, It's hard. Like the method of my madness, so to speak, and why I share and how I share. I said it comes up organically and all that, but there has been, there's been a lot of thought on my own on how to go about it how to talk about it how to dispel that rumor like the 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 example you just raised like I wouldn't have known until you told me like you know you know me now everyone on this podcast like I grew up a showman like I understand that that has more impact than if I told you the first day Mm -hmm. right it's, and what I was saying earlier, like we should be honoring and in awe of the misfits because they're the ones doing it in spite of, right? It's like, yes. And that's, <laughs> that's kind of it, right? That's that moment, that's that aha that you're describing when I say, by the way, I'm bipolar, like, what the, you know, like, what now? You know, <laughs> but, you know, bipolar for me, first and foremost, it's a chemical thing, right? And we have to appreciate that every human machine is built slightly different, right? From the get-go. I think we can all agree with that. And bodies have different builds, different things. They come from different genes. They're predisposed to have certain more illnesses, et cetera, et cetera, right? Tall, color of your hair, all of that, all of those infinite number of configurations, if you will, right? So first and foremost, bipolar and a lot of mental health conditions is it's about chemistry, right? Your body was just built in a way that it does too much of or does not do enough of, of X, right? And the idea of medications is not to cure you. And this is one thing I want to make clear. It's, there's no cure of all of this because we're not treating a disease like some foreign substance like a COVID. Mm-hmm right? You're reorganizing or you're making an existing machine more efficient. Some of the parts are just broken. They're just rusty, right? They were, they were misshapen during manufacturing. It's not something to cure, right? So the medications don't cure you. What they do is they get you to a more level playing field so that when you have to deal with the minutia of the static quo world, you can deal with it more rationally. So you don't flip out. You don't get super angry. So that's part one, right? When I think about bipolar people and the, and the many that I've talked to, and even just standard mental health folks, the ones who struggle 
with the day-to-day of the world, I've asked them, like, tell me about an episode, right? Well, tell me one of those moments where you flew off the handle, you know, and all that. What was going on? Like, what, you know, how did it happen? What was being discussed? You know, that kind of thing. And no matter what the thing was, because they're all different, the core common message was there was a lack of fairness going on or there was a wrong being done. And the response to that, because their chemistry is off, is really big. And society terms is uncalled for. Like you can't throw chairs across the room if you're pissed off in a meeting, right? There's, there's a layer of respect you got to do. But for someone who's bipolar, like they just don't have that in them right out of the gate. Like they need to fix their machine a little bit and keep it maintained a certain way. So they don't do that. However, all that said, what they're really guilty of is feeling with stronger emotion, ultimately. They, and this is what I tell my sons, because more than likely, they're going to have some similar condition as my wife and I, because we are genetically designed that way. Quite frankly, I think my mom is undiagnosed based on how she acts. Our, we just feel emotion stronger. So our machine, although it lacks certain chemicals to keep us in check, at the same time, it's also designed to feel things harder than the average person. When I think of that, I don't think of that as necessarily a bad thing. Why wouldn't I want to feel everything more? There's a difference between what I feel and how I feel it versus the action and reactions that I do of it. And that's the challenge of the bipolar person because on one area, I argue they're actually more evolved because they can feel things harder they can sense things more like if you think about the nature and the current environment of the known people who are bipolar and stuff you know who a lot of them are they're celebrities and artists and singers right they're all of these thespians and all of, like these people who are just looked at as stars in our cultures and now all of a sudden they're like all mentally ill. Is that, is that just a coincidence, right? Those folks are looked at to be great people, people that everyone wants to aspire to. Like, isn't that the correlation? The only problem is, is the yang to all of that because there's a balance to everything, the yin and the yang, is that when we do fly off the handle, it's bad and there's no denying it. But Maybe we're just early evolved humans. Maybe we're just the beginnings of like a heightened sense of animal. I think a lot about like the animals that we see, like, you know how evolved animals are compared to us? <laughs> like they can like talk without words, like birds can fly. Like yeah, to say we're not going to evolve. Like we think of ESP and that's it. like, dude, evolution takes thousands of years. Like maybe we're onto something. I don't know. All I'm saying is for right now and for present day, I think it's helpful for everyone to understand like the thing we're guilty of is we feel intensely anything 
doesn't matter what the thing is. And usually it's around imbalance, unfairness, and we just want it to be better. It's really weird. Bipolars, basically, they're built wanting things to be better every day. That's kind of how I view it. And that's what I say to anyone who will hear it, anyone who has my condition and all that, because I don't want them to live in like a fear. And I don't want them to fear things like being on meds because that stigma, right? Oh, I'm not normal. I'm on meds or I'm on meds and now I feel great. So I'm going to stop using them. Like, no, dude, like, <laughs> like, like your car needs special gas, right? Some cars need special gasoline. That's what a bipolar needs. It's not about curing anything. God, God forbid we cure it. Yeah. Because how is anything going to get better if everyone's the same? Mm-hmm. Right? Society only gets driven forward by the people who stick out. If everyone does the same thing, nothing changes. And that's exactly. really, and that's the antithesis of all life. Everything changes, right? That's the guarantee of life, even beyond taxes and death or whatever, change. I love it. It's right, so, good. so much great nuggets in okay. what you just said. So it's I'm great. great. I'm glad. I'm glad. Hi, my wonderful goat friends. Firstly, thank you so much for your support and listening. If you're enjoying this conversation and other episodes of the podcast, I'd like to ask you to please give us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or whichever platform you are listening on right now. And if you're so inclined, we'd love to hear your feedback in a full review. Also, might be a great idea to hit subscribe on that platform you're listening to right now so you can get notified of new episodes as they are released. Thank you so much again for being one of our loyal GOAT listeners. So we met at a company. Neither of us are there anymore. You actually moved on to a different company, but you decided to actually leave that company because of challenges you were facing with your mental health. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and kind of like, what was it like to make that decision at the end of the day? It's not really easy to say, I'm going to leave my job. No, it's, it's not. Um, Although I think we navigated the couple of COVID years pretty well and probably better than many because we were sort of used to being different and stuff like that. Um, it still took its toll. Um, you know, after you left our company, I was still there for a good, let's call it eight, nine months, right? And although it was, you know, work and productive work and all that, it really kind of had burnt me out. I mean, you know the story. There's a lot of reasons why you and I were both wanted to go. Um, so I hopped onto this new job, but all the while, um, my older son, who's, who's, I said, doing well, you know, he started propping up some issues again with school and things like that. And then we finally started really looking into kind of long-term solutions for helping him with school and, and things like that. Now that he's like 10 and getting older and rigor is coming and stuff like that, um, combined with, um, you know, the job that I thought I was taking and God bless those folks I was with, it, it wasn't the job that I thought it was going to be. And it became quite stressful. And to the point where I was almost having anxiety attacks in the morning, um, coupled just to 
go online, but that was also because every morning for a while, like was awful at home. Like some kids are sad or scared or angry. Wife is the same. I'm upset or angry. And there's this realization that, oh, uh, I regressed a lot. Like that seven years since, right? So when you know I was saying like right out of the hospital, it was great and it's every day it's gotten worse. It was that moment, it's like, oh, seven years later, oh my God, like I've become so like my old self that it's freaking me out. And, you know, although my wife is the absolute boss of our house and she is the administrator and all of that, <laughs> um, you know, I am the emotional leader of our home and because I was so off and because I was so off this kind of betterness mentality, everything else was suffering. And so my wife and I had started the dialogue again, another benefit for knowing each other this intimately that we can pick up on those nuances and talk them through. And we talked about finances and all that, and, you know, the risk of taking a hiatus and all that. Um, but we could financially do it. Luckily, again, she's an administrative wizard, only reason we could, um, so that I could take the time to refocus in the now, which I've lost so much of, re kind of find um, Zen and Piercing and all that. Um, and then also kind of start setting the stage for just kind of like our home life and kind of making it more efficient and operational. You think that's funny given that that was kind of the work we did and all that um, just to kind of be able to master that static quo a bit better. And so that if I happen to go back into the same type of job and all that, at least we'll be rocking and rolling much more efficiently and evenly. Um, but there's also a side thought of like, maybe I could discover a different work life or anything like that. Um, you never know. I'm really putting my basket in, you know, you and me starting a podcast or something to, or, you know, this is going to oh, be, oh, this is going to be nationwide, you and I, and yes. I, they'll, they'll ask us to do a whole thing. Um, no, I'm not going to jump on your, that's your, this is your thing. Um, I'd be so, all for it though. I know it'd be <laughs> fun, wouldn't it? God, yeah. We, we have such fun conversations. Uh, we got to talk about the Ravens later. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it was hard because um, I just started and I'll be honest, like I had made a lot of change. So like this, so you thought I was something when we worked together, this new place, I went full all in. I'm like, I am just going to run this just so different than any other team, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and it was great. And I took these misfit people and I made this operations team and we just I mean, what we did just in the seven months and um, it was amazing. So I could leave knowing that I did install some good things, even though it was a short time. Um, it did make me feel bad. I mean, I felt bad. There were some good people. I think my team was really excited and um, that's kind of the challenge I think I find now is like, I do, I do recognize that I, I do seem to, have an ability to be inspirational and things like that for people. I just have to be careful how far I stretch myself over time and things like that. Um, because like, 
yeah it, it it's it's hard um the, a lot of the reason i left the last this last place was part of my job was absorbing everyone's pain and given my mental condition even though i'm all about i'm stronger with emotion and i can deal with it like it it took its toll and like my family life and my own self-esteem suffered because of it so we had to make a stand and you always have to choose yourself yeah gotta choose self and family always yeah. I feel good about it i still am scared like long term <sighs> making money you know all that kind of stuff but you know i'm we're just putting all our kind of faith in this way of thinking about how life should work and focusing on right now and just making the better choices and decisions and hopefully it plays out if anyone out there is in a similar situation as you for how to go about deciding whether leaving their job is for the benefit of themselves and kind of what advice you would give to them? I think the first thing would be don't doubt that feeling Mm -hmm. is first. There's a reason why like it's crawling up the back of your neck into your brain. You know what I mean? Like there's reasons behind it. You might be able to articulate it, you might not be able to. So that's one, don't deny it. I think the second part is being very realistic and true to like the static reality of things. Like how much money do you really have in the bank, right? Do you know exactly how much money you need to survive each week, each month and making sure you map that out. I don't like that. I hate numbers. I hate math and all that, but that you got to do that. Um, The reason mainly is because that helps frame the length of time and lessens the amount of anxiety and like a clock ticking in the back of your head, if that makes sense. Cause like that unknown, you don't know. Um, I think next is assume and insist to release all thought from your mind for at least the first couple of weeks, like plan for that plan to do like, jack s-h-i-t you know what i mean like don't (laughs) or or really really indulgent live in the moment i just want to enjoy things i've earned it type of stuff Ooh, you know what and that kind of goes with and there's all these other things but being smart about that um you know additionally like i i I mentioned the shirts i would love to do these t-shirts for a living and stuff but like the practicality of it it's like it's so hard to make a buck on it and all of those so be careful about thinking that you're gonna pursue that passionate hobby because the regret is always you make your hobby into your job and then you hate your hobby and things like that um but i'm all for people exploring different vocations actually i've said it many times in the past where it's like it's a tragedy that the assumption is you only have one career in your life you know what i mean like why don't we have like three like how much more cool would a life be like you know your 20s you have a job and your 30s 45 you know you have three careers um and the final thing i would say is you earned the right to do this by being born by getting through whatever you had to get through all that muck and the fact that you're standing there today 
you've earned the right to make the decision. And don't let anyone else tell you differently. I love that. That's great, Stephen. That's so okay. great. Good. Yeah. Okay. And there will be people on this show who will literally illustrate how possible it is to have four different careers like throughout your life, like, like completely that. different fields. I love it. My husband too is he's like on his third career right now. Oh so my God, I love that. totally I possible. Good. Within reach. That's what I think so too. I think yeah. so too. I'm still trying to figure out my first one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes. Um, well, thank you. That's cool. So this has gone on very, very long. Tell Magda, I definitely owe her like a huge bottle of whatever she wants. <laughs> Fair enough. I will. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. It's flown by. Yeah. It yeah. Really has. Okay. Yeah. All right. The last question Great. I have for you that I ask everyone yeah. is because everyone I'm bringing on the show has been an inspiration to me and probably so many other people in their lives. And so I want to know from you who or what in your life has been your biggest inspiration and why? There's obviously a few in life, but I won't drag this all on. But one I will say, because I've always meant to say it, is you. And And I've said it to others in the context of when I told you about my story and what you said to me was like, oh my God, you're this inspiration. And like knowing your story and what you've gone through and how I talk about you to others. And I'm like, she is this badass. Like she is the badass of badasses out there. And it's folks like you that reinforce a lot of the things I've said today about the underdogs, about the misfits, about those people succeeding and striving and how they're the ones that should be the heroes. And I'm not just saying this because it's your show, like you are amazing. And there are so many things about you I hope I can be like and emulate in my life. My, my face is probably like so red right now and not being sunburned. <laughs> I, mean, I also want to shout out to my father, my mother, of course, like yeah. huge influences, my sisters, of course, but I've never had real idol idols to be fair, other than Superman. I love <laughs> Superman. Um, he's a philosophy. It's not about the person, although I'd love to fly, of course, but um but I would answer it now, like everyone I've met because every single one of them for the 30 seconds to the hours I've spent with them have shaped me. I am a product of the world, if that makes sense. It does. I started with my parents and then extend to my family, but I am a product of this world. And I would say I've been fortunate and lucky enough more so than many because of all the places I've been all the different people I've met yeah I'm very lucky in that sense like I kind of sit in this middle you know like I I kind of like I've met all these different types and I got people in every continent and all of them are an idol because they've all made it in their own way dude to make it this far in this world is fucking awesome 
hard. Pardon my French. It's hard. So every single one of them, if I could say thank you, I would. So I guess this is the easiest way to do it. Thank you to everyone who's ever met me. And I'm sorry for those I've hurt, but I promise you I've done something with it for the better. I think what makes your story and Magda's story so inspirational to me, and I don't know if I fully expressed this, is because you guys went through such a tough time getting, going through the mania, getting diagnosed, having children, but you did it. You like went through all the things you needed to go through. You got the medicine, you support each other. And there are so many people out there and I can't speak to the reasons why, but very, very possibly including my own mother who refused to get help. And decided to continue raising a family, having kids anyway. And there's just so, so many things that happened, negative things that happened as a result of that. And so that's also why both of you were so inspirational to me, because you guys did that. Like, imagine what kind of like family you guys would have right now if neither of you actually said, let's do this. Like, we need to do this for ourselves. We also need to do this for our boys. Yes. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I hear you there. I, I get why I I do understand why people are so hesitant to it. Right. Um, you know, the insane, crazy, whatever you want to call it. I've thought about this a lot and I think you could make a pretty good argument. They're probably one of the most, you know, prejudiced against groups of people in human history you know? yeah. <laughs> before, honestly, gender or anything. It's like that guy is, I mean, if you think if you, I, I, I like to mesh biblical Genesis with actual evolution. I think it actually, they go very well hand in hand if you just allow yourself to do it. And I just think like the first outcasts were like, you know, V zero of, you know, uh you know homo erectus you know what i mean and like the kids were the first version they looked at their parents like oh you're too monkey like <laughs> right i'm gonna walk them like <laughs> you know and it just started there like that's how organic and so i get it like there hasn't been a time in history where it's been okay anywhere ever beyond gender race and all of that you're crazy we don't want you here like <laughs> this is busy it you know, um, but to that and to those folks, uh, and I wish I had a conduit. I, I, I would want to talk to them about it because I'd want them not to be afraid of it anymore. I want them to feel like it's actually a privilege, just like Sophia said about cultures. It's a privilege to be a member of this community because if you can survive it you're probably one of the toughest SOBs out there so anyhow but I hear you second that I will second (laughs) that and that's such a great place to end okay sounds great okay thank you so much Stephen this has been 
beyond what I could have even imagined a conversation okay. would have been like with you. So thank you so much. And I, You're welcome. I know that everyone is going to feel so inspired, hopefully by your story. And I don't know how they couldn't, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, if it's just one, it was worth it. So yeah. there you go. Well, um, more than honored. Thank you for having me on um, and sharing my story. And this is great big wishes and success on this podcast. I hope it goes to the moon. It's great. Um, and thank you for supporting folks like us, T. We need you. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Not Your Average Goat is produced and edited by me, Tisha Gillespie, with music by Anton Blazov, Sergey Quadrado, and Coma Media. All content is copyrighted and should not be recreated, reproduced, or reused without explicit consent. Please visit notyouraveragegoat.org forward slash contact for questions.